This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Dr Foster went to Gloucester in a shower of rain. He stepped in a puddle right up to his middle and never went there again. We are talking poetry this morning, why we should be using it in the classroom, what we should be using it for and how we can get our students to appreciate it. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hey, very good morning to you. And as always, thank you for joining me for breakfast on this Saturday, the 8th of October, 2022. I am coming to you live from my school this morning. Um, I am back on location, uh, like I was a couple of years ago when I did my interview with Nadia Stevens-Makesh, head of German Celebrate, um, to celebrate German Day, uh, National German Language Day. Today, I am not in school for a celebration. I am not in school for an interview. I am in school for open morning. Yes, we have got our parents, prospective parents, looking around this morning. So I've come so that I can do my show from school. And then as soon as I am done with breakfast this morning, I will step out and I will do my meet and greets around our department. Um, It's quite nice to be in school on open morning. I haven't had to be for, uh, for a couple of years. Um, but it's nice to, to see the buzz. It's nice to see our students giving up their Saturday morning to, um, to show prospective parents around. Our sixth formers, I work in an independent school and um, our younger students, our years nine, 10 and 11 are all in lessons. Um, but our sixth formers don't do lessons over the weekend. But I've seen them all suited and booted this morning, ready to greet their prospective parents. And um, it makes me proud that they would be willing to do that for the school, willing to to get up early on a Saturday morning. Um, So that's why I am here. Um, It does mean once again that I am not going to accept calls in today, um, only because once again, we don't screen our calls in before they come through on Teachers Talk Radio, and so because I've got students in the vicinity, I have got parents looking around, um, I don't want to take that risk. Not that I believe that any of my loyal listeners, not that I believe that anybody who would want to share breakfast with me is going to be the type of person to say anything untoward on the radio, but um, I'm sure you understand why I don't want to take that chance. That said, you can still text in. You can text in to me live on the Podbean app. If you are listening to us through Podbean right now, you can tweet me. I am at Mr. D. Lester, all one word. Um, if you've got any thoughts, any comments on anything that, um, that I talk about today, I would still love to hear from you, even if I am not taking calls. And if you are listening, of course, on Catch Up, um, I am available. So I, when I plan my shows, I always make sure that I plan things that are interesting to me, topics that are interesting to me, because I think 
And um, this is a discussion that I've seen on, on Twitter over the past 24 hours. If you are interested in the topic that you are talking about, then you can ensure that other people are interested. You know, part of the reason at secondary why we teach our specialist subjects is not just because of our knowledge of those subjects, but because of our interest, because of our enthusiasm, because of our passion. And so, of course, I want to bring that to you on the Saturday morning. I want to, I want to start your weekend with some enthusiasm. I want to start your weekend with some passion. And so I always choose to talk about topics that I find interesting, which means that if you are listening on Catch Up, um, please do tweet me uh, with comments on anything that I've said about any of the past shows. You know, today is the 8th of October 2022. If you are listening to this on the 8th of October 2024, because you are working your way back through the archives, tweet me, because I can pretty much guarantee I will still want to talk about poetry. Okay. If you have gone back and you have listened to my interview with Kenneth Milson about um, homeschooling and you've got some thoughts on that, then once again, tweet me. You know, we can engage in the conversation on Twitter. That is the, the, the joy of social media. So please do do interact. And that's, you know, that's not just for me, but for all of us here at Teach Talk Radio. We, we are here because we want to interact. We are here because we want to share. I was on a course yesterday. Um, I quite enjoyed my course. It was very good. It was one of those where none of the things that the host was talking about was new um, to me or my head of department, but one of those where we probably needed to hear somebody else saying the things we've heard before. Because when you hear somebody else talk about something, it gives you a fresh perspective on it. It allows you to see it in a new way. And you know, we were listening, we were occasionally muting ourselves and talking. That I find is, is the joy of um, online courses as opposed to being in person. Not, not that I, I dislike in-person courses. Um, back when I did the, um, the Teach Meet MFLI plants um, up in Manchester back in June, that was brilliant. That was the first in-person course that I've been to in a long time. And the energy there, the buzz there was amazing. And um, we've had this discussion on Twitter a few times before, but I absolutely had the best table um, at that conference. And it, it was brilliant, you know, meeting all of these people in, in person, uh, being able to present in person, that was fantastic. So I do think we need those in-person um, conferences, those in-person discussions. But what I did quite like about um, about being online and and being online with somebody else, not just by myself, which again is what I've tended to do over the past couple of years, where all the CPD has been done after school. Uh, you know, these courses tend to start at 4 p.m., I guess, so that the presenter can teach and then start presenting. Um, it, it, it was nice to be with somebody. It was nice to mute our microphones and, and to talk about how the, the presenter's ideas could be implemented in our setting in our school. Um, because at an in-person conference, you can't necessarily do that, uh, not without disturbing the other people that you are, are sitting with, or indeed the presenter themselves. You know, we all know what it's like to be in a classroom talking to people and having the people who should be listening to you talking over the top of you. And none of us want to do that to a presenter. Um, and so it, it was quite nice to be able to have those conversations uh, synchronously while the, the talk was happening because we got a lot out of that. We got a lot out of that. But 
something that it kind of occurred to me on Monday, but it was really, it really hit home yesterday, was the curve of forgetting. Now, again, if you follow me on Twitter, you will have seen that I actually posted about this yesterday. Um, I asked a question because we've all seen the curve of forgetting. Uh, we all know what the curve of forgetting looks like. Um, but just in case you can't visualize it right now, it is, as the name suggests, a curve that tells us um, how soon after learning something a person is likely to forget it. Uh, just so that I make sure that I am um, citing this properly, this is by uh, research by psychologist Hermann Ebbinghaus, um, and it's from 1885. Okay, so it is quite old research, but it keeps coming back round. It's not something that has died out. It's not even really something that has been a fad. Um, you know, it's something that we keep being reminded about. So Ebbinghaus's curve tells us that on the day of learning, they, our students will retain approximately 100%, perhaps down to 80% of what we have taught them. By 24 hours later, by one day after, that drops down to approximately 55%. Again, I'm just reading off of the, off of the curve that I've got, so all of my numbers here are approximations. Your values may vary. Uh, by day two, 48 hours after you've taught it, we go down to approximately 35%. And then by day seven, so only one week after you've taught it, we go down to about 10%. They will remember about 10% of what you have learnt. This is why interleaving is important. This is why review is important. Again, we have all read um, everything that Tom Sherrington has ever written, and Tom likes to talk about um, review. He likes to remind us of how important review is, and it absolutely is. Um, if you are interested, please do check the Teach Meets MFL Icons Twitter account to go back and see the recordings of uh, the proceedings from June because my talk was on how we can use our starters to help students to remember how we can use our starters as review. Um, I will, I'll, I'll tweet a link out later. And so we in the classroom do a lot to try and make sure that our students don't forget, to try and make sure that our students retain. But it occurred to me, sort of as the presenter was talking yesterday, about all of these um, metacognitive ideas to do with language teaching and learning, that so many of them are outside of my control as the classroom teacher. And so I tweeted out yesterday and I asked um, whether people who are in charge of timetabling ever take the forgetting curve into account when they are creating the timetable. And I've been quite shocked by the replies that I've had suggesting that um, more schools than I would like tend to have examined classes year 11 and year 13 either on consecutive days or with long gaps in between them. Suggesting again to me that the forgetting curve is not being followed as timetables are implemented. Now, I understand, okay, please, if you are a timetable creator, do not think that I am currently um, um, besmirching what you do, because I know that is one job I would hate doing. I know that you cannot create a timetable that pleases everybody, um, and I know that you cannot create a timetable that works as effectively um, as it ought to. It, it's just too big a job. Even in the smallest of, of schools, it's too big a job. 
But I got to thinking about what the point of all the theory is. What actually is the point of the metacognitive theory? What is the point of us learning it? What is the point of us knowing it? What's the point of the researchers doing it if we don't try and implement it into practice? What is the point of me knowing that every seven days the retention of what I've just taught will drop down to about 10% and I then look at a, a, a Chinese class, for example, that I have who I see once a week on the same day. Let's say I see them every Wednesday because that's just how the timetable falls. I can't expect them to retain that information. I can't. And even if I set a homework that hopefully they would maybe do, let's say I see them on the Wednesday, so hopefully they would do that homework at some point over the weekend. So it's at least a midpoint between me teaching it and their retention dropping down to 10%. There's still, first of all, no guarantee that that will happen. We've all, we all have the, the able students, the higher retainers, who like to do homework on the day that it's set um, because they, want to make sure that it's done. And we all have the students who either forget or don't like to do their homework. And so it's done on the way to your lesson. And you can tell by how shaky that handwriting is. And so because we don't control when our students do the homework, the idea of putting homework in as a, an, an ed memoir as much as everything. Oh, OK, I'm sorry about that, that could actually be my um, my headset, Tom. So I apologize for the tapping and clicking on the mic today. I am going to move my, my headphones out of the way. I, in fact, might get rid of them when we switch to the news um, and see if that makes it better. But thank you for letting me know. I appreciate it. Uh, Pat, Pat Link has texted in to say, D&T students only have one lesson a fortnight from year seven to nine. That's incredible, Pat. That is incredible. Um, and I, I, I do think maybe the practical subjects suffer from timetabling even more so than the, 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 the theoretical ones, because I, I can see a timetabler um, wanting to sit and say, OK, well, you know, D&T, drama, PE, there is less to forget. And so it can go in whenever it needs to go in, forgetting the theoretical side that is important. Um, and so, yeah, I, I came away from that thinking, I love the theory. I absolutely love the theory. Um, I'm really interested in pedagogy. I'm really interested in, in knowing what students, in how the brain works. That was something my head of department said to me yesterday. The brain is ridiculously complicated. The brain is, um, it, it's incredible. It's incredible, but it's also so fragile in how it works. It's so picky about how it works. And so much of our day is scheduled, not actually according to how the brain works, but according to parental expectations, according to being able to be babysitters so that parents can go out to work, um, according to the, the needs of, of the teachers. There are all sorts of things that should be taken into effect as we as we create timetables, as we go through things that often aren't, and and sometimes for good reason. Um, Pat's texting again, very tough, and my timetable changed eight times in the first four weeks. Wow, 
Wow. I mean, that's, that's not helpful for teachers or students. It's not helpful when you've got the, the pupils who forget which room they're supposed to be in. Um, they forget to, to refresh their online timetable. So it doesn't matter if you told them there's a room change and you've requested that refreshment. Um, they will still go ahead and um, go to the original room um, at the original time. It, it doesn't help you as the teacher figure out your life. Because, you know, we, we do give our all to our jobs. We do. That's the nature of teaching. Whether it should be or not is a completely different discussion. Um, but we do. And as much as possible, we rearrange our lives around the classroom. We rearrange our lives around when our extracurricular activity can be or when we are doing a boarding house duty or when we need to offer revision support sessions in year 11. And, and we make those those adjustments but we can't feasibly do that if the timetable keeps changing um, which which is is kind of an implicit suggestion that we should be living our lives around school and and not the other way around yes pat absolutely i i agree pat has said now uh, recalling essential subject vocabulary and learning new skills is difficult on that kind of timetable agreement and it really is it really is um, you know, if if they are perhaps missing a lesson even where the timetable has changed um, or turning up late because they've gone to the wrong room, all sorts of things, all sorts of things can get into the way because of that timetabling. It's, it's a difficult one. It's difficult. And again, for all of the timetablers listening, I do not envy your job at all. I know that it is an impossible task. It is. But I do have to i do want to question again why we as classroom teachers are being told that all of this theory is important that the forgetting curve is important if i as the classroom teacher actually have no control over that anyway if i have no control over how often i see my students just i don't know i wish i had an answer to it um, I, I wish I could maybe turn around and say, oh, perhaps the forgetting curve is fake. <laughs> um, you know, perhaps they don't forget. But my own experience, and I'm sure all of your experiences too, tell us that actually the forgetting curve is real. Um, this is a problem. And I don't know, I think perhaps it's something that, um, that school leaders do need to have a look at. have teamed up with the Witherslack Group to bring you a fantastic face-to-face meetup in Manchester next month. Tickets are free with lunch included and you'll be met with a host of amazing speakers. Sign up for your voice now at witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash your voice 2022. Hi, I'm Charlie Burley, the Teacher's Health Coach, and I want to talk to you about the first ever health and wellbeing event for educators rewriting well-being it's a full day dedicated to improving your health as a teacher through looking at your nutrition movement mindset workload and well-being in school you'll hear from our incredible lineup of speakers including andrew cowley jen foster kimberly wilson simon bolger and many more there'll be talks workshops and time to network with like-minded colleagues 
We'll look after you all day with brunch, lunch, and all the refreshments. You'll get to meet our incredible speakers and our amazing team of ambassadors from the education space. It's a non-profit event with all proceeds going to the amazing education charity EdSupport. This isn't one to miss. I look forward to seeing you there on the 22nd of October at Etc Venues St Paul's in London. You can search Rewriting Wellbeing on the Eventbrite website to find out more. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The TES magazine focuses on fears of a teacher training shortage as a report reveals ITT cold spots. The report in the magazine says the Department for Education in England has been warned that it must urgently tackle teacher training cold spots as analysis reveals recruitment issues across England. The analysis suggests that multiple regions in England face losing swathes of places on courses after a government shakeup cut initial teacher training provided numbers by a quarter. Recent results of the second and final rounds of the DfE's re-accreditation process showed that around 25% of existing providers could be lost. The teacher training sector is now calling for a pragmatic and realistic approach to ensuring trainees can access courses in all parts of the country. This comes at a time when the number of teachers entering the profession is falling. The North East is facing the sharpest potential loss as 32% of trainee places available last year are under threat. The East and South West regions also face significant cuts of around 24%. The report acknowledges that some new providers have received approval to start offering courses from 2024, but others within the sector are concerned that this will not fully resolve the issues. Providers have 15 days to lodge an application to appeal loss of accreditation. Teams of the UK's most talented young tradespeople are to begin competing in the World Skills Competition 2022. The competition traditionally held in just one country is, this year, taking in smaller events across the world. The event, which sees a UK team of 35 travel around the globe, begins in Stuttgart, Germany on the 4th of October and will end on November the 26th in Salzburg, Austria. The UK team will be looking to improve on a 12th place finish at the 2019 event. FE Week features details of the competitors and their areas of specialism which include toolmaking, milling, web development and cybersecurity. Winners for each category will be announced during closing ceremonies for each competition, with medals given to those achieving gold, silver or bronze. Medals of excellence will be given to those judged to have reached world-class standard in their skill. In Wales, First Minister Mark Drakeford has taken part in an online Q&A session with school pupils. The session, hosted by the Politics Project, gives opportunities for schools to support learners in realising one of the four purposes of the Curriculum for Wales, 
becoming ethical, informed citizens of Wales and the world. Questions range from finding out about the politician's journey into politics, climate change, and whether Wales can indeed win the World Cup. And finally, in South Africa, the government has issued a press release focusing on the recruitment of 25,000 education assistants and general school assistants for both public and special schools. The recruitment drive is part of the Presidential Youth Employment Initiative. Education assistants will support teachers with administrative tasks, classroom management, sports coaching and cultural activities, whilst the general assistants will focus on maintenance, cleaning and general admin. The programme is part of a drive to improve standards within schools in the country, as well as increasing employment opportunities. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week is World Space Week. Space is such a vast topic, there's always something you can find out that could potentially be a hook for a lesson. The theme this year is sustainability. I only found out about Space Week as I was browsing the internet. This got me thinking about how amazing the internet is and how so much information is at our fingertips. This week, I'm going to look at finding inspiration for a lesson using information I would never have known about without the amazing technology of the internet. During my research, I've discovered that there are a number of websites out there dedicated to awareness days. I've compiled a list of genuine official awareness days to motivate your form, classes, colleagues or even yourself from now until the end of term. In October, we have Buy British Day, National Poetry Day, National Kale Day, World Octopus Day and World Porridge Day. This one sounds funny, but it's actually to raise awareness for children in poverty in developing countries. Local Radio Day. To celebrate this, our very own Tom Rogers is going to stop talking every time he goes under a bridge. Still in October, we have National Roast Pheasant Day, UK Coffee Week, Apple Day, Global Champagne Day, International Stammering Awareness Day, World Tripe Day, National Pumpkin Day, American Beer Day, National Black Cat Day and Wild Foods Day. There's not much information on Wild Foods Day, but if you do go all bare grills, please do let us know how it went. Ending October, we have RSPB Feed the Birds Day. Please feed the birds more than just one day. In November, there's World Vegan Day, National Stress Awareness Day, Roast Dinner Day, International Stout Day and National Hugger Bear Day. I'd advise against hugging a real bear, however, it would make a very engaging lesson. Great British Game Week, British Pudding Day, Templiano Day and Zinfandel Day are followed by Homemade Bread Day. I think this is here to soak up all the wine. Still staying in November, there's National Gingerbread Day, National Eater Cranberry Day, the fruit, not a band member. The end of November brings us White Ribbon Day. Days of interest in December before we break up are Fuel Poverty Awareness Day, Christmas Jumper Day and National Hot Chocolate Day. The internet is an amazing resource for information. I hope you can find inspiration and motivation in your next search. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Steve, you could not have linked into the theme of my show today any better if we had planned it. I love when that happens because I am talking poetry today as a result of it having been National Poetry Day. Um, I do love theme days. I do. One of the things that I enjoyed most about teaching primary was when we tried a calendar curriculum and everything was based around the, the days that were happening, the events that were happening, the festivals that were happening. Um, and as a languages teacher, both classical and modern, I really like to, where possible, draw attention to these days. Um, because for me personally, before I kind of 
realized that, that I understood language. I, I knew that I found culture interesting. I knew that I wanted to know about different people in different places and how they, they lived their daily lives. Um, I remember being fascinated when I would buy uh, or when I would be bought a new game for my, my Sega Master System. So we're talking a few years ago now. And you'd flick through the book, um, which gave you this story, this backstory to the game that had absolutely nothing to do with the, the actual game that you were playing. Um, you know, the, the quality of the graphics were not up to what the storytellers were trying to do. But the way that it would be set out was that each page really would be a double page spread. And it would be in about six columns and each column would have the exact same text printed in different European languages. And, and that kind of made me realize that there were, there were little kids all over the world like me who were playing the exact same game on their master system. And, and I wondered how similar their lives would, were to mine, how, how different their lives were to mine. Um, you know, and we're talking about the, the late 80s, early 90s. So it's, it's not like this was a time where foreign travel was impossible. It's not like this is a time where we didn't see other um, non-British cultures represented on TV. But it was that, that desire for a tangible experience, that desire to know about normal people, real life people, people like me. Um, that was what hooked me in. And that's what I like to try and do with, with these days. Um, to give our students, give my students that same interest, that same desire to know that I had when I was younger. So it was this past Thursday, uh, National Poetry Day. And I love poetry. I absolutely love poetry. Um, I have had poetry published. Um, I'm, I'm very, very privileged in that regard. I love to use poetry in the classroom. Um, and I love to use poetry across the curriculum. Now, obviously, for the subjects that I teach, um, the subjects that I am able to teach at secondary are, of course, languages, classics, English, um, and I can teach RS to GCSE. All of those um, lend themselves quite nicely to poetry. But I think in all subjects, uh, you know, we have Pat has been texting in and he's mentioned D&T. I think there is absolutely a place for poetry in D&T. I think there's a place for poetry in PE. I think you can use poetry just about everywhere if we think about why we can use it and what we want to use it for. So my, my aim for today, or oh, I feel really teachery now, telling you the aims of our next hour. Um, my aim for today is just to discuss poetry, to talk about why I think poetry is important, the different ways that we can use poetry at different levels in different subjects, um, introduce you to some different types of poetry if you are not, uh, if you are not massively into poetry, but perhaps you want to give it a try. I've got some, some ideas. Am I going to share some of my favourite poems with you and talk about why they are important to me? And once again, if you've got a favourite poem, um, that is appropriate for me to check while I am on a school Wi-Fi network, please do let me know. Please do either text in if you're on the Podbean app or send me a tweet at Mr. D. Lester. I would love to hear what your favourite poems, what who your favourite poets are. So to start with, let's have a think about why poetry is important. And that's the assertion I'm going to make. I think poetry is important. My show is going to be about why poetry is important. If you don't believe that, then that is absolutely fine. Um, maybe I'll change your mind. Maybe I won't. 
but that's the that's the stance that I'm going to take. It's not massively scientific my session, my my show today, um, because I already believe the outcome of my hypothesis. But why do we think? Why do I think that that poetry is important? Um, I've found proudtoBePrimary.com, which has got quite a nice list of of reasons that we should use poetry, and I think that all of us regardless of whether we teach primary, whether we teach early years, whether we teach secondary, whether we teach um, at university, should be able to, um, to relate to some of these. So first of all, poetry builds reading, speaking, and listening skills. Absolutely. I don't really need to elaborate on that. You know, poetry is often read aloud. There are debates about whether we should get children to read aloud, particularly in classroom settings, but it is. And so it helps to build that recognition of words in very younger children or in learners of foreign languages. It helps them to think about rhythm and cadence, which actually just helps their speaking. We know, you know, the stereotype of teenagers, particularly teenage boys, is that they just grunt at you. And I think we've all taught the student who comes into our classroom and grunts at us. But by reminding them of poetry, by getting them to think about the cadence of a poem, the rhythm of a poem, we can get them to think about the rhythm of how they speak. Because once again, we've been all in a situation where we've listened to a presenter who was incredibly dull and spoke monotonously the whole way through the presentation. And, you know, sometimes our students may do that. And so, very important for us to, to teach them how to use their voices interestingly. How to, for my music teachers out there, how to use their voices as an instrument to engage their listeners and to get their points across. Point number two, according to Proud to Be Primary, and I will again I will tweet this link out later, is to explore language and vocabulary. And Pat has texted in to say that he used to use poetry to try to uh, and and make up poetry to help GCSE engineering students remember key terms. That is perfect. That is perfect. The studies show, I don't have a study to hand, but studies show that rhyme help us to remember. It's why jingles work in advertising, because the rhyme, the rhythm, the cadence help us to remember things. So where you've got a subject that is key term heavy, um, like engineering, like DNT, like sciences, poetry is a good way to help your students to remember it, because they will remember the, the rhyme between the words. It also gets them to, to e experiment with, to expose themselves to new vocabulary that they might not see anywhere else. You know, the first time they see a key term, I want to be really clever now and drop an engineering term into, into my example as if I know what I'm talking about, but I will just make a fool of myself. Um, but if they're encountering a key term for the first time and they see it in a poem that you are teaching them, then that has broadened their vocabulary in a way that you might not have thought, in a way that you might not have been able to predict. It's also quite good for um, ESL learners. So if you've got students for whom English is a second or a third or a fourth language, poetry is a good way to help them make the link between spelling and sound because they can see the word written down and they can hear how it's pronounced. And again, I'm thinking now, about particularly scientific terms that are borrowed into English from Greek, from Latin, that don't necessarily um, match English um, spelling and phonics conventions. 
And so by, by seeing the word and hearing it at the same time, they're going to make that cognitive link between the two. Poetry can help to inspire writing. All of our students have to write. It, it doesn't matter what subject we teach, it doesn't matter at what age we teach, they all have to write something. And poetry can help them to do that. Again, if you're in a, an arts subject, then looking at poetry can help to inspire a, a piece of the art that you are teaching. If you are teaching a humanity, perhaps you can use poetry to help to inspire an essay that you need your students to write. If you are doing a, a um, manual or science-based subject, if you are doing D&T, if you are doing um, sciences, if you are doing maths, you can once again use that poetry to drive home those key terms, to inspire the writing up of an experiment, to inspire the evaluation of the picture frame that they have just built. And you can make that cross-curricular. You know, in, again, I'm, I'm not a DT teacher, so Pat, if you think this is a stupid idea, please do tell me. But there's no reason that I can see in year seven why an evaluation of a product that they've made needs to be prose. Could they write a poem about their picture frame, an ode to my picture frame and how it turned out? Obviously, if we're training them for an exam, then yes, it needs to be written in prose. But if you're celebrating Poetry Day and you want to get them thinking creatively, to get them thinking outside the box, which is very useful in in subjects, particularly like DNT, um, you know that might be a way to get them to do that. It might be a way to inspire them to think a little bit differently. It encourages creative thinking. Um, you know exactly as I have just as I've just said, poetry is a form of expression, as we will see when I talk about some of my favourite poets um, over the next half hour, forty five minutes. Um, and lots of children struggle to express themselves for all sorts of reasons. Um, you know, there could be very good physical or psychological reasons. There could be a, you know, a medical reason why a student struggles to connect with their emotions. There could be a hormone reason. It could be that they are 15 and don't know how to regulate uh, what they are feeling. Um, it could be that they are a 37-year-old teacher and doesn't know how to process a lesson that went badly, but can do so through poetry. So it encourages our students and ourselves to get in touch with our feelings, and, and we can then figure out what we are going to do with them. What I did as part of my, one of my creative writing courses at university was um, write a poem and then create a story based on the feelings that we expressed in the poem. Because poetry can help us to, to process feelings in a way that other forms of writing or even talking can't. So again, if you are in a subject like English or if you are advanced in foreign languages and you want to try and get your students to write poetry or stories, get them to write a poem first, almost like a brain dump of their feelings. And then that can be turned into the basis of a, of a short story. And finally, it builds a love for reading. I find it interesting that um, at university we go to lectures. Now, of course, the, the word lecture comes from the French word lecture that means reading, because the, the assumption at university is that you will read around your subject. 
that you don't just turn up, listen to your lecture and go and then not think about it until your next lecture because, you know, curve of forgetting. And to a lesser extent, I think that expectation does exist in, in A-level. I know lots of schools say to their A-level students, um, their, their 17, 18-year-olds, you know, you should be doing an hour of extra reading, let's say, for every hour that you were in class. But in the middle of the school years, that kind of disappears. So we, we have our young children up to about year six, taking a reading book home every single week, getting their parents or guardians to sign the reading record, um, being heard to read by the TA, by uh, a parent volunteer, whoever it might be. Um, and that reading for pleasure, in inverted commas, um, because is it really for pleasure if we are making the students do it? But that reading outside of the classroom is very, very important in those early years of schooling. And we then expect it again when the students come to, certainly to A-level and perhaps to GCSE, depending on the subject that you are teaching. But in that middle, in key stage three, in year seven, eight and nine, between the ages of 11 and 14, that disappears. And we know that it's between the ages of 11 and 14 that children will begin to cement the routines, the habits, the interests that they will take into adulthood. And so I think if we want to build a society of readers, of, of adults who read, then building a love of reading for children is absolutely important. And it's very, very important early on when we can show children how to take joy in stories. But it's equally important there in the middle when those processes are being cemented and when maybe it's not cool to read, but because it's not cool to read, they don't read. And so that that habit of reading disappears. And again, we can use poetry to do that. Poetry is short by its nature. Um, you know, epic poetry aside, that's a whole other beast. Poetry by its nature is very, very short. And so, you know, assigning a poem about our subject, um, you know, assigning a, a funny poem about an accident that happens in the D&T classroom, assigning a, a poem about the dissection of some lungs, if that's what they're doing in science, just, as, just, just to read. Don't analyze it. Don't pull it apart. Don't discuss it. Just read it. And, and just understand that it can be fun to read. It can, it can give you a, a, a hook into something about yourself that, that you didn't know was there. So those are the ideas that Proud to Prove Primary came up with as to why poetry is important. Um, and I agree with each and every one of them. Um, I think it's absolutely a hook. Poetry can be used as a hook in all subjects for all sorts of things across the curriculum. Um, and all we have to do is, is, is do it. And of course, not just on Poetry Day, in the same way that um, we wouldn't just feed the birds on RSPB's Feeding the Birds Day. Uh, you would hope that the birds would eat all year round. But all the time, constantly finding ways to make it work. I've been thinking about why students are generally resistant to poetry. And I've come to the conclusion that it's the almost classist nature 
to poetry teaching. We, we make poetry bland. We make poetry palatable. We make poetry BBC Two friendly. And it shouldn't be necessarily. Um, I'm thinking right now specifically about Shakespeare. Um, anybody certainly who was educated in England, as I was, and probably anybody who has been educated in the Anglophone world, um, has read Shakespeare, has studied some Shakespeare at some point in their school career. Um, I would imagine lots of you who grew up outside of the, the English-speaking world have also probably studied Shakespeare because of his uh, impact on the world stage, if you will forgive that awful pun. But I think about how sanitized Shakespeare has become, how badly we teach it in order to make it palatable, appropriate to the age range that, to which we teach it. I will never forget the first time I saw the Scottish play on a year six curriculum. And, and I just thought about how ridiculous that was. I, I'm not saying that, that year six children are too young to appreciate Shakespeare. I'm not saying that year six children don't love a, a good story about murder. But I, I wouldn't expect an 11 year old to be able to get into some of the stuff that, that the Scottish play requires in order to understand it properly. And so what you then do is almost teach these students that Shakespeare is very shallow or that he is very posh, that he is unidentifiable, that you can't identify with him. You, you know, he is of no relevance to you. When in fact, nothing, in my opinion, could be further from the truth. Shakespeare took so many um, plays and ideas from before his time, from antiquity, and made them palatable, I suppose, made them entertaining for his contemporary audience. Um, there was a, a thread that I saw tweeted this morning from, I need to just check who it's from because I've, I've actually got the thread open. It's the Cultural Tutor. And this thread is all about where Shakespeare took his, his inspiration from. And as I read through um, a lot of the things I, I hadn't realised, a lot of the connections that I hadn't made, I realised why, as a classicist, of course I love Shakespeare. You know, the Comedy of Errors from 1595 is based on the Brothers Menachmus, which is from sometime between 254 and 184 BC. That's when the playwright Plautus lived. It's a Roman play that he took and he translated and he made culturally relevant to the English of 1594, you know, 1500 years later. And so I think about how if that play was still relevant to Shakespeare, after all of that time, Shakespeare can still be relevant to us and is still relevant to us. He kind of, he has to be. And I do think it's it's the way that he is portrayed, particularly in, in British society, that creates this block. So what I want to do is just have a quick look at Sonnet 18, which is my favourite of Shakespeare's sonnets, and arguably one of the most well-known. Um, I'm just going to read it out to you, um, in case you are not sure, in case you have not seen it before. Sonnet 18. 
Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed. And every fair from fair sometime declines, by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest. Nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe, or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. My first introduction to that poem was actually in the Darling Birds of Maiden 1992 series. I, I, was, I was seven, I was eight in 1992. My mum loved the series, and so we watched it. And, and I heard that poem. Um, if you're not sure of the context, a, a drunken Charlie, um, a character, recites it uh, while he is, just before he is about to pass out on a snooker table. And the idea is that he is reciting it about Mariette, one of the, the principal female characters. And, and it is recited in that very received pronunciation, very um, middle-class way that you would expect somebody who is a tax inspector, because that's, that's Charlie's job, to recite the poem. And so it seems, it feels very clean. It feels very childlike, almost, in its innocence and we forget what it actually means because we assume that it's about summer shall i compare thee to a summer's day and we assume that shakespeare is talking to his his muse whoever inspired this poem and comparing them to that summer's day and comparing them favorably but what the poem actually says is that the person, the muse, is better than summer. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? No, thou art more lovely and more temperate than that summer's day. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot, the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed. And every fair from fair sometime declines, by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer, your beauty, shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade. You are not going to die, death is not going to take you. When in eternal lines to time thou growest, so long as men can breathe, or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. It's passionate, this poem. Shakespeare here is obsessed with the physicality of the person that he is talking about. And it's very much about how this person looks. It's very much about the fact that um, the gold complexion of the sun is dimmed, but the complexion of the person is not. It's very much about how they still look young or look young for their age. Thy eternal summer, you are looking young, you have always looked young, you look younger than you are, shall not fade. That's not going anywhere. 
because you are beautiful. Nor will it lose possession of that fair thou owest. It's not going to get rid of how, how fair you are. And death is not going to be able to, to boast, to brag, is the line that Shakespeare used. Nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines the time thou growest. Death doesn't get to take you away. He doesn't get to say that you belong to him. Because I'm making you live forever in my poetry. It's, my reading of it is almost obsessive. It's quite compulsive. It's very intense. Uh, no Sweat Shakespeare has done a, a modern English translation, uh, which I will read out to you. And it's interesting to compare the two. Shall I compare you to a summer's day? You are more lovely and more moderate. Hush winds, uh, harsh winds disturb the delicate buds of May and summer doesn't last long enough. Sometimes the sun is too hot and its golden face is often dimmed by clouds. All beautiful things eventually become less beautiful, either by the experience of experiences of life or by the passing of time. But your eternal beauty won't fade nor lose any of its quality, and you will never die because you will live on forever in my enduring poetry. As long as there are people still alive to read poems, this sonnet will live and you will live in it. It's that capturing of, of beauty, that capturing of the moment in which Shakespeare was so enamored with this person that the sonnet is about. And I think when you read it quite plainly, when you read it without that passion, you kind of go, oh yeah, that's very nice, and you don't think about it. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease half all too short a date. Very nice, great. But you lose the meaning. And what 14, 15, 16 year old could not relate to that intensity of emotion? You know, I talked before about getting our students to write poetry as a way to express their emotion, to understand them. But when you're young, you experience so many emotions for the first time. And because it's the first time, it's intense. I read something recently that talked about why a young child overreacts to grazing their knee. And, and the, the author of the thing that I read pointed out that for lots of children, that is actually the worst thing that has ever happened to them. And that's not a negative. It's just that they are too young or so well looked after that nothing worse has happened to them than grazing their knee. And they're very lucky. They're very privileged to be in that position. But it does mean that when they graze their knee, it is the end of the world for them because it's something that they've never experienced before. It's so intense. And our students feel the same way as they start to go out with each other, as they start to worry about moving off to university and being on their own for the first time, um, as they start to feel lonely when they are sitting in their, in their student halls, and not really knowing how to make friends because it was so easy before you were just best friends with the person you sat next to in the classroom. 
there are lots of these experiences that our young people go through for the first time. And there's lots of poetry written about that. There's lots of Shakespeare written about those things, but they don't always relate to it in the way they should because we don't show them what it actually means. Shakespeare is not Sunday afternoon on BBC Four. Shakespeare is, was designed to be Saturday night, summer, blockbuster, popcorn flick. It, it's, it's for, it was for, it was designed for the, the lower classes to enjoy. And so by sanitizing it, we are taking away a lot, we are taking away a lot of what I think our students can um, and should be able to relate to. So Shakespeare, I think, is is my favorite poet in English. Um, obviously most well known for his plays, um, but his sonnets, his sonnets are wonderful. And of course, if you are wanting to be LGBTQI plus inclusive in your classroom, you can point out the debates around Shakespeare's sexuality. The fact that actually we don't know about whom these sonnets were written. There is a lot of evidence to suggest that Shakespeare was uh, experienced attraction to men, even if he wasn't openly bisexual, or even if he wasn't um, confirmedly bisexual. And so you can have that discussion and, and make your LGBTQI plus students feel included by pointing out that this person who can quite quite easily, quite realistically be lauded as the greatest poet, the greatest playwright in the English language, may have also not been heteronormative. On that note, I want to think about poetry as a way of um, legitimately exploring identities that are not ours to allow our students to broaden their horizons. It is Black History Month. It is Black History Month. And as a French teacher, I can't ignore Black History Month. It would be ridiculous for me to ignore Black History Month because of the impact that colonialism from France has had on, um, Af on the, the African continent. Um, and so, I, as a white man teaching predominantly English-speaking students, though not entirely, but predominantly English-speaking students, French, in the south of England, I cannot relate to the experiences of the French-speaking African poets. I might um, myself tick a couple of protected characteristics boxes, um, but this is a, a, an experience that I personally cannot relate to and, and I shouldn't pretend that I can. And I shouldn't attempt to appropriate. You know, we don't want any cultural appropriation going on. But what I can do is give my students poetry that is the lived experience of some of these black authors and discuss it with them because they can then see what these authors have, have been through. So 
But as an example, I'm going to take a poem by Leopold Sedal Sangor, who lived 1906 to 2001. He was a writer. He was a Senegalese politician. He was, I believe, the president of Senegal between 1960 and 1980. And I know him as the first black man to have achieved, uh, to have gained a place in the Académie Française. Now, the Académie Française is the governing body of the French language. They are very highly respected academics who essentially decide what is and is not French, um, with the idea of making French understandable for everybody who speaks it. Um, Leopold had an amazing sense of humour, and I want to I want to read one of the poems that he wrote specifically about um, race, because the the authors who wrote in this this genre that French calls calls négritude, um, this poetry of being black and French speaking, I suppose is the best way for me to translate that. They often wrote about colonialism. They often wrote about racism. They wrote about the inequality and it was through the poetry that they were able to express those feelings. So this poem is called Poème à mon frère blanc. I'm going to read it first to you in French um, and then I will translate it for you into English. Quand je suis né, j'étais noir. Quand j'ai grandi, j'étais noir. Quand je suis au soleil, je suis noir. Quand je suis malade, je suis noir. Quand je mourrai, je serai noir. Tandis que toi, en blanc, quand tu es né, tu étais rose. Quand tu as grandi, tu étais blanc. Quand tu es au soleil, tu es rouge. Quand tu as froid, tu es bleu. Quand tu as peur, tu es vert. Quand tu es malade, tu es jaune. Quand tu mourras, tu seras gris. Alors, de nous deux, qui est l'un de couleur? Now, if you are not French speaking, but you have studied any French at all, you probably picked out some colors in that poem. So I'll now do this. This is a spot translation um, that I'm doing. Uh, poem to my white brother. When I was born, I was black. When I grew up, I was black. When I was in the sun, I was black. When I was ill, uh, when I am ill, sorry, I am black. When I die, I will be black. Whereas you, my white brother, when you were born, you were pink. When you grew up, you were white. When you are in the sun, you are red. When you are cold, you are blue. When you're afraid, you are green. And when you're ill, you are yellow. And when you die, you will be gray. So, of the two of us, who exactly is the man of color? I think that one stands out to me because of an experience I had last academic year. Uh, with my year nine French class. It, it actually was nothing to do with this. It was quite late in the academic year. It was, it was in like May or June. Um, 
and it, it was a class of, of just boys and it was a small class there were only nine and me and they were doing some work and they were chatting and i'm one of those teachers that, that lets chatting slide as long as they're doing some work um and then one of the boys um of nigerian heritage turned to me and he said so what does it feel like when you blush and i was like okay that's that's an interesting question um and, I, and you know i explained my, my face goes a pink color red color because the blood is coming into my cheeks and i can feel it and it feels hot and his eyes kind of opened really wide and he went oh that happens to me and he explains that sensation of, of of feeling his cheeks flush and of feeling really hot and one of the the white boys in the class sitting next to him turned and he said does it and they had this conversation and it was quite interesting how this the the young man who posed the question had grown up thinking that he didn't blush because he he is quite dark pigmented and so, you know, his skin does not change colour when he blushes. So he assumed that he didn't. And by asking me the question and me explaining the, the physical process of blushing, what it feels like, he realised that he does. And, and, and he understood some commonality that he didn't think was there. And then the boy sitting next to him, who engaged with that, also realised a commonality that he didn't think was there. And so I think by engaging with with this idea that we are the same while being different is really important because sometimes we can we can focus too much on the differences and sometimes we can focus too much on the similarities when in fact the experience is both you know i grew up like i've said before in the in the 90s and the early 2000s where the the politically correct thing to say was that you didn't see color you know as 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 a white person the the, the correct thing to say was all people are equal but actually i like now that the people of color to use a word that perhaps as leopold suggested um is is, is not correct um they're turning around and saying, well, actually, no, it, it's important to acknowledge the differences. These differences are my culture. These differences are the way that I experience the world. And so I like this poem because it, it draws attention to something that culturally it's very easy to, um, to just take for granted the way we do it in our language. And again, luckily, person of color has now fallen out of favor in English. So it, it, it doesn't work too well in English anymore. Um, but it, it's interesting to reflect back on, on prejudices, on ideas that people have had. It's a very simple poem. There's no rhyme in there. It's all relatively simple vocabulary, to be honest. I would expect, as a French teacher, to give that to a, a middle ability year 11 set and have them understand it. I would maybe want to explain tondique. So there, are, there are, there's one phrase, two words in there that I would expect to explain, but I would, I think they could work the rest of the act. It's, it's not difficult language, but it's a very powerful idea. It's a very, it, it shines a light on the injustice 
of the fact that the people with the institutionalized power have turned around and assigned color to a person because it's different to their experience when in fact perhaps color is more appropriate to the person who assigned it in the first place. So yeah, I quite like that one. I, I, I like that one very much. And I think it can open up a lot of conversations. If you are dealing with social justice, if you are dealing with race, I think that's a good one. And again, this is not something that I personally can relate to. If I sat down and I tried to just explain the black experience, that would be appropriation. That would be wrong on every conceivable level. I can't do that. But what I can do is use this poetry, particularly from those um, who come from countries that have been colonized, where we teach from, you know, in languages where I teach about former colonial countries, and in some cases, current colonial countries. Um, I, can, I can share an actual person's actual experience without appropriating it, without being disrespectful, and just by saying, this is how this person felt. I don't need to decide whether it's true or not. I don't need to say whether I agree or not, because that ultimately doesn't matter. This is um, this poet's lived experience. So let's take that on board. Because you can't... Um, my friend who I was on the course with yesterday put it very nicely. She said, you can't deny somebody else's truth. And so if this is true to the poet, then it's something that we, we should be talking about. Um, the, the other thing that I am not is Japanese. Uh, I teach Japanese. I speak Japanese, but I am not Japanese. I just, I hope that, um, my use of the word thing there was not taken the wrong way. I meant as in characteristic, just so that we are, um, just so that we are clear on that. I am not Japanese. I cannot be Japanese, but I teach Japanese. And so it is very important for me to, again, use Japanese poetry. And there is, there is so much Japanese poetry out there that is, is interesting, that is accessible for our students. In fact, one of the other reasons that I am here on open day is because the Japanese department at my school has a haikuist in. Uh, we've got our year 9, 10 and 11s off timetable today, and they are working with a haikuist who is um, teaching them what haiku actually is. We all think we know what haiku is because, you know, we, um, we learn it in school. We learn it in year three or year four or year five, and we know that a haiku is a poem, and it's got five syllables and then seven syllables and then five syllables. And that's kind of where the teaching stops. But actually, a haiku is much more complex than that. It's much more complex than that. Um, they are actually shortened forms of a type of poetry that was called lenga. And they were actually originally just the first verse of these lenga poems, which then evolved to become a, a standalone form of poetry. Uh, that at first was called hoku, until it eventually became haiku. 
Um, it was actually renamed haiku by a poet. It wasn't a, a linguistic shift. It wasn't a, a, a vowel shift. It was actually the poet uh, Masao Kashiki, one of the four haiku masters, as they are called, who, who renamed it. And modern haiku is quite flexible. You will see some with a 5-3-5 five, five pattern. Uh, uh, you will see some written of just any kind of non-rhyming lines, as long as it's three lines. All sorts of ways that haiku um, are used. But of course, there is, there is an actual way to write a haiku. Um, it, it's not just five, seven, five. It's not just three lines. It's not just that it doesn't rhyme. There is an, an actual form to it. So, a haiku does actually need to contain a kireji, a, a cutting word. And that appears at the end of one of the three lines. It's kind of like a kaizora in, in Western poetry, or a volta if you are a fan of sonnets. Um, it exists to provide a, an ending to a line, or a sense of closure to a line, and it gives it that structural support that it needs to stand alone as a poem rather than just being a verse of something else. English doesn't have kireji. Um, we don't really have anything that is the same. And so English haiku quite often use a, a dash, an n dash or an m dash, um, or sometimes an ellipsis to create that break um, or to create that juxtaposition where in Japanese we would use the kireji. Where we tend to, in English, split haiku up into syllables, what they are split up to in Japanese is on. And on are not quite the same as syllables. It's a sound unit. So it's... A syllable is the best English translation of this, but actually it's not quite. It's not quite. So we have these, we have teiki haiku, fixed form haiku, which use the, the traditional 575 pattern of 575 on or 575 um, syllables. But you can also have jiritsu haiku, which do not follow that pattern. You also need a kigo in your haiku. Now, kigo is a season word, a nature word. Um, the kigo actually ought to come from a specific list, which is called the saijiki. Um, and they are basically references to Japanese nature in order to hook it. So we see haiku quite often. In fact, if you have seen my, um, my card for this week's episode, the script on it is a haiku. It's written in 575. That was, that was 
what I was going for. But it's not a haiku because there is no nature imagery. To give you an example of haiku, uh, we're going to talk about Bashot. And his most famous haiku is called Old Pond. And it goes, Furu ikeya, kawazu tobokimu, mizu no oto. Old Pond, frog leaps in, water's sound. So in there, we have ya at the end of the first line of Old Pond. And that's our cutting word in there. Uh, we've got frog, which implies the springtime. We've got shigure, which is specifically a shower of rain in the late autumn or the early winter. And so basho there follows all of the, um, the, the traditional haiku features. He, he uses every single one of them in Old Pond. Uh, another one that I quite like by Basho is Hatsu Shiguri Sarumo Komino o Hoshigenari. The first cold shower, even a monkey appears to want a little straw coat. So again, we have got this nature imagery. We've got the monkey, we've got the, the, the cold shower of rain. And then we've got, it, it's almost like a, a, a jarring juxtaposition at the end. Sometimes it feels like that end line doesn't relate to anything else that we've seen. It's got this little coat of straw, which is not what you would expect the monkey to want. So haiku are quite nice because they are short and they are um, quite easy to access. Our students can read them in almost no time at all. I'm gonna, last haiku that we're gonna talk about is one by Isa. And this points out how uh, this is a good one to demonstrate that 17 on is not the same as 17 syllables. So this one it also has quite a nice ending line that illustrates the, the cutting away that I just, just mentioned. Edo no ame nangoku nonda hototogisu. I'm, uh, to translate this, I'm actually going to have to move some of it around a little bit so it makes sense in English. But it says, how many mouthfuls do you drink of Edo's rain? Cuckoo. And again, depending on my English translation where I put the word cuckoo, I can make the poem about the cuckoo. Cuckoo, how many mouthfuls of Edo's rain did you drink? Or I can just have my cuckoo randomly on the end there. And, and make my audience guess who I'm talking about. Of Edo's reign, how many mouthfuls did you drink, Cuckoo? So I can play with it a little bit. So that's haiku, which is the most famous Japanese form of poetry, but it's not the only one. Um, in fact, the first form of poetry that Japan had were called kanshi, and, and kanshi is basically Japanese for Chinese poetry. It meant poetry that was written in Chinese. Um, there is a long history of Chinese poetry in Japan, of Chinese literature in Japan, because when the Chinese invaded, um, originally they took their poetry with them. 
And so Kanshi came to refer to any poetry either written natively in Chinese or written by Japanese people in Chinese. Um, and it was from quite a long period, from about 17, I think, was, uh, sorry, 794 until about 1185. It was long. And, and the Japanese upper classes really liked it at that time. There are Renga. So Renga, like I said, is where the haiku originally comes from. So a Renga has um, two or more stanzas, two or more verses. The first is the hoku, the haiku. And then there is a next, which is a, like another haiku, and it becomes like a chain of haiku. Now, the nice thing, the interesting thing for me about Renga is that they were designed to be collaborative. So somebody would essentially write a haiku that was the first, that would become the first stanza, the first verse of this Renga. Then the next person would write another haiku that became the second stanza of this Renga. And then the third person would write one. And this is something that I've done in the language classroom. Um, in um, English as a foreign language classroom, I have written, or I've had my students collaboratively, collaboratively there we go, write a story. But not quite to this extent. It was, okay, you come up and write the first sentence. Okay, person next to you, come up and write the next one. Until eventually we have a story. But you could do the same here. You could have your class write a Renga about whatever it is you are studying. Renku um, is a similar thing. Renku is the same as Renga, except the uh, stanzas alternate. So you have three lines, then two. You have written by different people. Now, this might be quite nice if you have um, a mixed ability class or if you have students who are quite shy, because what you can do is, is manipulate it so that the ones who are not as confident with writing can write the two-line stanzas, whereas the ones who are very confident with their writing can write the three-line stanzas. Waka are quite nice, because waka were traditionally exchanged by the upper classes in lieu of letters. So while in Europe, the aristocracy were writing letters to each other, uh, spending their days in, in pen pal relationships. Japanese aristocracy were writing poetry to each other. Um, women, in fact, were the primary waka poets because waka were written in Japanese and the men tended to write in Chinese. And so again, if you are looking at the role of women in your subject, if you are looking at the importance of women in your subject, then this is something that you can point out, that waka actually developed from women writing. And that then had an interesting impact on its form, because the language used by women, the Japanese used by women, is different to the Japanese used by men. And so it became a stereotypically, stereotypically quite feminine form. Uh, then there is tanka. Tanka is another one that is quite common and is often taught in primary school. Tanka is non-rhyming, five lines, and the meter there is five, seven, five, seven, seven. So five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables, and then finally two sevens. The first three lines actually have a name. They're called the kami no ku, the, the upper phrase, the top phrase. And then the last two lines are the 
Shimonoku, the, the lower phrase, the bottom phrase. And the last Japanese poetry form that we will talk about is the uh, Sedoka. Sedoka is a call and response poem. Uh, quite often a love poem made up of two verses, either in a 575 or a 577 pattern. The first verse, so the, the, the first three lines, is one half of a person in a relationship asking the other person a question. And then the second half is the other person in that relationship answering the question. And so we then have this conversation almost between two people. Again, something else that you could do, if you didn't want to make it about love poetry, because you didn't want to awkwardly pair your students up, that's absolutely fine. You could just have it about asking and answering a question. If you're in the language classroom and you are practicing asking questions, this would be a good way to do it. To finish off today, Tim has texted in. Good morning, Tim. He is a friend of the show. Tim was, um, as you will know if you've listened to my show before, our very first guest and we talked about children's literature, so it's quite fitting that Tim has texted in and asked, may I get a shout out for verse novels, please? Absolutely. Uh, particularly those for young adults. So verse novels are really interesting. They are novels, they are stories written in verse, written as poetry. It's quite an interesting form. It's an up and coming form. And in fact, I very recently had a verse story rejected um, and the publisher came back to me and said, we don't publish poetry. And I was kind of like, okay, because in my head it was a novel. Uh, no, it wasn't at all, it was a story. Uh, it was just a story written in verse. So this is a, a fairly new form, but it is one that is taking hold. It is one that is becoming quite popular. Um, and it's, in my opinion, one that is great for our kids because again it's accessible they're shorter often they are easier to digest because of the way in which the prose is set out it's not a wall of text we quite often get the ones that i've seen are like a stanza on a page it's kind of like a picture book the ones that i've seen uh tim recommends the black flamingo by dean atta which is about self-acceptance and identity and he's added uh, Louisa Reed's Gloves Off, which is kind of even nominated, wow, uh, onto his TBR. Now, Black Flamingo, actually, we, I was talking before about using poetry um, to teach experiences that I don't have. Um, and Black Flamingo is another way that you can do that. You know, you can take these stories, you can take these verse novels and use them to teach about these experiences that you can't have just because it is outside of your identity. And again, that doesn't have to be about race. I've talked a lot about race today, um, but it doesn't have to be about race. It can be about gender identity. It can be sexuality. It can be anything that you don't want to appropriate, but you want to ensure your students can see a lived experience of. So there we go. That is, in my opinion, why poetry is important why we should be looking at poetry from different cultures and why 
we should be incorporating poetry into not just our own um, subject, if we are specialists, but across the curriculum. Hopefully this morning has given you something to think about. Maybe I've given you some, some new poetry that you would like to go out and explore. I highly recommend looking into Japanese poetry. I adore Japanese poetry. Um, and I think it's very accessible. Um, if you've not read Shakespeare's sonnets, please do go and read those. Uh, and do start to look at the works of the, the African French speaking poets in order to, to see their experience. I would like to thank both Tim and Pat for engaging with us today. Um, I do, as always, really appreciate everybody's engagement. And once again, if you have anything that you would like to add to the discussion, please do tweet me at Mr. D. Lester. I am our only TTR radio show today, so I hope you have enjoyed it. I hope this is, has given you your fix. And please do tune in to our shows tomorrow and across the rest of the week. I will look forward to having you for breakfast next Saturday. Thank you and goodbye.